Amen. Uh, a couple of announcements that we should have made uh, this morning, but we didn't do. Uh, so apologies for that. Firstly, welcome to Pamela and Logan all the way from Australia. I think that merits a round of applause. And also, I'm not sure if uh, Morag will thank me for this, but it's lovely to have Morag mean uh, back with us uh, this morning as well, and that also merits a round of applause. It's not, not, not the same without you, Morag, so it's lovely to see you in your pew uh, again. Let's turn to Luke's Gospel together, Luke chapter 1. together from verse 26. It's page 1026 in your pew Bibles. Page 1026, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. And down to verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones 
but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Amen. Father, we have uh, affirmed so often already in this service together that you are the God who is with us. You uh, condescended in Christ. You came down in the Lord Jesus Christ. You chose to dwell among us in the midst of the mess of our world in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are still with us today by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that you are with us in this building, in this place at this time by your Spirit. What a tragedy, what a travesty it would be were we to meet in the very presence of God and to fail to hear and to heed your voice. And so, Father, we pray that through the the, the weakness of my words, we would be given grace to hear the very voice of God. Father, as we open your written word together, may we encounter the living word. May we hear his voice. May we know his nearness. And may it be our joy to bow humbly and gladly in his presence. For we ask it in, through, and for the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, don't uh, tell Katie this. It would kind of ruin the surprise. But we are considering buying Katie her first ever now CD. You'll know the, the CDs now. That, that's why I call music. This is subject to parental vetting of the, the songs and the lyrics on the CD. Uh, but you can kind of uh, tell, this is my theory anyway, you can tell roughly how old a person is by the first now record or cassette tape or CD or digital download that a person had. We're now on now 95, and uh, my first ever now, my only ever now, was now 23. That was 1992. I tried to find the CD, but I couldn't find it anywhere in the house. It's maybe in my mum's house. I was so excited. I actually bought this CD before I had a CD player, and I remember trying to been terrified as I took the CD out of the case that I would break it. And eventually I got it. Not the real one, as I've said, but I remember holding the CD in my hands, thinking, oh, can't wait till I've got a CD player. This is the future. I'm holding the future in my hands. So I couldn't find the real CD, but I looked up the track listing purely for uh, nostalgia. And I've been singing uh, Tasman Archer's Sleeping Satellite uh, ever since now 23 and now we're on now 95 but there's also a now Christmas version I think there are several actually now that's what I call 
Christmas, and it shouldn't be a surprise, really, because Christmas is a season that has music right at its heart. Music is central to the season, isn't it? So we, we know that Christmas is coming when we switch on the radio in the car, or we walk into a shop, and it's, you know, fairy tale of New York, or have yourself a merry little Christmas, or silent night. Uh, music is central to the season in our society and in the church as well. We, we have these hymns that we label carols, and we only ever really sing them at December, which is a shame, and I am culpable in that. I have some input into the songs that we sing, these great hymns of the faith that celebrate the coming of Christ, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, o Come All Ye Faithful, Silent Night, all these great Christmas hymns. Music is central to the season. And I want to think as we approach Christmas Day about some of the earliest Christian Christmas hymns, about three songs that were sung in the very earliest of days celebrating the birth of Jesus, recorded for us in the Bible itself. And firstly, it seems most appropriate to start with the song of Mary, Mary's song. Mary wasn't perfect. We could have added her to our list at the children's talk. She was, perhaps we might say, one of the goodies in the Bible, but even the goodies weren't perfect. Mary wasn't perfect, but there is much about her life that commends itself to us as Christians. There is much that we can learn from the example of Mary. Firstly, she was a woman who feared the Lord. Verse uh, 50, she celebrates in her song, His mercy extends to those who fear Him. Well, His mercy certainly extended to Mary. She was a woman who knew what it was to fear the Lord. I have spoken in the past at length about what it means to fear God and what it doesn't mean to fear God. We are uneasy about the word fear, and we have good cause to be uneasy about the word fear when it comes to relationship. I understand why. We must be careful. But there is such a thing as a healthy fear of God. There is such a thing as a healthy fear of God even for the children of God. Katie knows that my love for her is utterly unconditional. And Katie knows that no matter what she does, I will love her. She knows that no matter what she does, I will always be her dad. So her, my love for her and her status as my child is non-negotiable. Non no matter what she does, no matter how naughty she may be, my love for her will never lessen or change, and her status as my daughter will never change either. She will never lose them. But when she misbehaves, when she is naughty, it does affect our relationship. It does affect the intimacy of our relationship. It does affect the, the joy that we should be experiencing as father and daughter. And when she's really naughty and I raise my voice, I do expect her 
to go, you know, okay, this is serious now. Maybe I should think about stopping what I'm doing. That's a healthy fear, not an unhealthy fear. Not a fear that says, my dad isn't going to love me anymore. My dad's going to throw me out onto the streets. I'm not going to be my dad's daughter. Not that kind of fear, not an abusive fear, but a healthy fear of a loving father. And that's the kind of fear that we ought to have of the Lord our God. If we are Christians, we will never lose our status as his children. He will never love us any less. But the way that we live our lives will affect the intimacy of the relationship that we share. And we ought to have that healthy fear of the Lord. A fear that doesn't want his displeasure, but wants to live in a way that honors him, in a way which helps the relationship to flourish and to be all that it could be, all that it should be. We live in a culture with, really with no sense of reverence or respect for authority. Again, I can understand the reasons behind that, but it, it, it translates itself into a culture even within some churches where there's no reverence, there's no awe, there's no sense of the majesty and the glory of God. In our society, everything is awesome, and when everything is awesome, nothing is awesome, really. There is no sense of the weight of God's worth. The, the Hebrew word for glory is very closely related to the Hebrew word for weight. That's kind of where it comes from. So, if you were a Hebrew, natural Hebrew speaker, every time you see the word glory in Scripture, you would think of the word weight. It has that sense you know, the, the, the Lord's glory is the weight of His worth. And we ought to have that sense when we're speaking of the things of God, of the weight of these things. We should never speak of the things of God or of God Himself lightly or glibly. These are weighty th things. These are wonderful things. These are glorious things that we speak of. And Mary had that. She feared the Lord. She had a desire to honor that which was worthy of honor. She knew the weight of His worth. And so her life and her song poses the question to us, do we know the weight of His worth? Do we acknowledge that not only by the way that we use our lips, but by the way that we live our lives? Do we acknowledge that nothing is more weighty, nothing is more wonderful than the glory of God? Do we live in such a way as to honor Him, as to glorify Him? Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. Do we live our lives in such a way as to testify to the weight of the worth of God? Related to that, our second point about Mary is that she served the Lord flowing from her healthy fear of God, her love for the Lord, her sense of the glory of the Lord, she naturally desired to be a servant of the Lord, to serve Him with her life. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Verse 46, and Mary said, we could just as well translate that, and Mary sang, my soul glorifies the Lord." And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state 
of his servant. Again, I think that has much to say to us in our culture, in our society. We are told time and time again, and I think it's often very well-intentioned, that we should be all about ourselves. The, the, the soundtrack that we are to celebrate is, I did it my way. That's the way we are urged to live our lives. That's the soundtrack that is celebrated in our society. That's to be our life song. I did it my way. But not so in the kingdom of God. We rejoice in people making the soundtrack of their lives. Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am and have, I never hope to be. Or as we sang earlier in the service, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. Facebook memes and television programs may tell us to love ourselves and to be true to ourselves and to believe in ourselves and to worship ourselves, but Mary chose to make God her God. She was his servant, even when that was very costly and very scary. She's about to get married to Joseph. It's an exciting time. Maybe she's picked a dress, sorted the seating plan, told Joseph what ring he has to buy for her finger. Maybe they've got the honeymoon destination all sorted. We don't know what was planned, but I'm sure there was some stuff planned. I'm sure she had dreams and desires for the wedding day and for married life together with Joseph. Whatever those plans, those hopes, those deeply cherished dreams, this news threatened to take all of that, all of them, away from her. Now Joseph might not marry her. Now people may gossip. I don't think we can imagine in our society the kind of shame that she would have had to have faced being pregnant without being married to Joseph. And this is a society where, you know, respect and shame, honor and dishonor are very, very important things. Even in our culture, to be gossiped about is a uniquely painful thing, but more so in Mary's. And how deeply unfair that would have been. She has done nothing wrong. But she can hardly defend herself, can she? Who would believe her? Nevertheless, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Those are costly words for Mary to say. She receives this news with humility and with gratitude and with joy. As costly as it is, she receives it with humility and with gratitude and with joy because she sees herself first and foremost as a servant of the Lord. Her identity is found in being a servant of the Lord. And now she has the chance to serve the Lord in this unique, in this wonderful, in this special way. And so she receives it with joy. Mary's joy 
is found in honouring God, even when it's costly, even when it's painful to do so. And what a way to serve, what a way to honour him, what a job God had given to Mary. What a task. Which leads us to our last point about Mary. She found her joy in bringing glory to God. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Verse 46 and 47. Now I know Mary must have been a good Baptist like us, of course. But you would almost think she had been having a wee read at the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? That's the, question, the first question that the Catechism asks. What is humanity made for? What are we here to do? God has placed a number of things in all of our hearts. He has placed eternity in our hearts, so we have this desire to live forever. We have this sense, no matter how much people may deny it, that death is deeply unnatural that it's foreign to us, that it's not right. We have this strong sense of justice and injustice, right and wrong. We would be comfortable with saying evil and good. I saw it last night in Hamilton Town Hall at the pantomime with the boys and girls saying yeah to the goodies and boo to the baddies. We have this deep sense of good and evil, right and wrong. Because God has placed that in our uh, hearts. And we also have this deep sense within us, again, no matter how much we might want to deny it, that life is not just chaos, that it's not just chance, that there is some meaning, that, that there is some purpose. Some of us might not know what that meaning, what that purpose is, but we have this deep sense within us that it's not all random, that it's not all meaningless, that there is a bigger picture. And that within that bigger picture, we have our part to play, that our lives have significance, that there is a purpose for us. So what is that purpose? What is the chief end of man? Well, the answer the catechism supplies is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Mary got that. Long before the catechism was penned, Mary got that. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God. And both of these things go together. It wasn't miserable for Mary to be a servant of God. It was a costly call, but it wasn't a miserable life. It wasn't miserable for Mary to say, may it be unto me as you have said. It's not a miserable thing being a Christian. It is costly to be a Christian. To say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's a costly thing to say. It's a costly way to live, but it's not miserable. It's joy. And in Christ, we have a special joy which is always there and which no one and nothing can ever take from us. It's always bubbling under the surface. It's not to say that we never get sad, that we never know sorrow 
or grief or pain. If you cut us, we will bleed. We weep as others weep. But even in our sadness and in our sorrow and in the moments where we feel overwhelmed by life, underneath it all there is this joy, as we spoke about only a short while ago, that just will not be extinguished. This flame of joy which just keeps burning away and nothing seems able, nothing is able to snuff that flame out. There is joy as we follow Jesus. There is joy as we glorify God. And these two things go together. I'm indebted to the American uh, pastor, uh, John Piper, for his emphasis on that. He wrote a wee devotional book, which I think is called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. The Dangerous Duty of uh, Delight. So to to fulfill our duty as Christians is not a boring thing. It, it feels dangerous at times. And neither is it a kind of miserable thing. We, we ought not to be a doer people. There is delight in fulfilling our duty. Joy in bringing God glory. Deborah was to uh, come home from a parents' night at school one day, and I were to have uh, flowers ready, the house immaculately clean, the girls in bed, and were I to welcome her in with open arms and say to her, Deborah, you know, I've got the house ready, girls are in bed, you just sit down, recline, I'll make you a cup of tea, We'll watch a romantic comedy together, you know. And, and she would say to me, Ross, isn't there, isn't there football on the television tonight? And I would say, well, do you know, I think there might be. But my greatest joy is in spending time with you, Deborah. Do you think she would turn around and say to me, oh, so it's all about your greatest joy? It's all about you, is it? Well, I've never tested the theory out, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think that would be her... I don't think that would be her reaction. It would be honouring to her for me to affirm that my greatest joy is found in bringing her pleasure and in enjoying time with her. And the same is true with the Lord. As we affirm to him that our greatest joy is found in honouring him and in spending time with him, uh, it's the best of both worlds. It gives us joy, and it brings glory and honor to God. And of course, the flip side is true. If I, you know, if we go back to that scene, Deborah comes in and I say, you know, I've done my, my duty. I've uh, got the girls in bed, tidied the house. I suppose we better watch a romantic comedy. I really don't want to. I want to watch the football. But I take my vows very seriously. I remember when I made them. It's my duty as your husband to sit down, to spend some time with you and to watch romantic comedy. Really don't want to, but I take my duty seriously. Well, that wouldn't honor her, would it? That wouldn't bring joy to her. 
So we ought to take that into our relationship with the Lord. We fulfill our duty, but in fulfilling our duty, we find our joy. Now, Mary is a humble servant of God. It's a costly thing for her to serve the Lord. But in this, she has found her joy. She has found life in all of its fullness. She has found a treasure worth selling all that she has to obtain. Mary has that kind of desire that says, you know, let people laugh. Let the plans for my life be changed because my joy is found in you, Lord. And as long as I am pleasing you, I am pleasing me. There is joy in glorifying God. There is much to commend Mary to us. But I think Mary would rather we focus on the subject of her song rather than on the singer of the song itself. I think Mary would have us rejoice in the Lord more than rejoice in Mary. So what is it about this God to whom Mary offers her glory that is so worthy of her worship and of our worship? Who is this God to whom the song of Mary is sung? Well, firstly, He is the Holy One. Verse 49, the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be distinct. It's to be different. The Lord God is holy in that He is holy other. He's not just at the top of the tree, the top of the table. He is in a league all of His own. He is totally different from us. Usually we think of holiness in terms of moral perfection. He is utterly untainted by the stain of sin. We are all stained by sin, but He is perfect in His purity. All He says is true. All He does is right. All He is is good. One true glimpse of Him in His holiness will radically change the way we see ourselves. If you read Isaiah 6, I'm not going to turn there, but you probably know the verses. If you don't, that's your homework. Turn when you get home to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees the glory of God and it totally changes the way he sees himself. He thinks, you know, woe is me. This is a disaster. He is so holy, I am so unholy. My people are so unholy. My lips are so unclean. He assumes that he is going to be destroyed. But he finds the Lord is also the one who is merciful and we'll get there in just a moment. He is the Holy One. Secondly, He is the Mighty One. This God who is holy is mighty. Power corrupts, we are told, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that holds true when we look at the world around us, but not when we look to God, because He is almighty, and yet He is completely holy, perfect in His purity, utterly uncorrupt. Look at how Mary rejoices in the way that God uses His power. He has scattered those who are proud, verse 51. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, verse 52. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty, verse 53. This holy, almighty God is the God who chooses to lift up the humble and to bring down the proud. 
He is mighty. He is almighty. Nothing is impossible for him. He has helped his people Israel. Uh, Verses 54 and 55, Mary was in the family of God. She looks back to how God has acted faithfully to the family of God through the years past. Now it's her turn in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of that same family. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons is Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, we used to sing. Right arm. Uh, We are part of the family of God, so we can trace God's faithfulness all the way to us today. He is mighty. He is almighty. Nothing is impossible for him, and yet he is merciful. He doesn't use his power to crush the weak. Quite the opposite. We see his mercy in the way he is mindful of Mary and all of her weakness and all of her humility and all of her lowliness. He sees her. He chooses her. He lifts her up. And he blesses her in this unique and wonderful way. He is mindful of Mary, and she is amazed, and she is overjoyed that God has been mindful of her. He is mindful of her humble state. He has done great things for her. And just as he was mindful of Mary, he is mindful of you. He he knows you by name. He knows who you are and what you face, what you are feeling, what you are fearing. He is mindful of you. And He loves you. And He cares for you. And His desire is for you to experience the best in Him. We see His mercy in that He is mindful of those who are not holy and not mighty. He is mindful of those who are unholy and weak like you and like me. And we see that mercy for the unholy and the weak fully in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the baby that Mary is to carry. We see the holiness of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible is clear. He is the exception to the story. He was without sin, even under the fiercest opposition, the strongest temptation. He never relented. He is without sin. We see the holiness of God in Christ Jesus. We see the might of God in Christ Jesus. He he calmed the stormy seas with just a word from His lips. He raised the dead. He forgave sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Ask the Pharisees. No one. That's the point. This is God with us. We see the holiness and we see the might of God in Jesus, but we also see the mercy of God. He came to seek and to save the lost. He humbled himself to be born as a baby, to suffer as a man, to die as a sinner, though he never sinned for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He humbled himself to experience rejection so that we might experience acceptance. He humbled himself to experience death so that we might know life, life in all of its fullness and life which will live on forever. He humbled himself to experience the Father's righteous anger against sin so that we could live in the Father's love forever. We could live with the Father's smile upon us and around us 
for all eternity. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for us, for you, and for me. Life lived in all of its fullness as a child of God, washed clean, made new, brought into the family of God. Life lived for all eternity is available now for all of us. All we have to do is follow, as it were, the example of Mary and humble ourselves and admit that we can't climb up to God. We are not good enough to reach up to Him. To admit that we need a Savior. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God. My Savior, we have to admit with Mary that we need a Savior, that we need to be rescued, that we need the Lord Jesus, the one who came down to seek and to save that which was lost. And as we look to Him, as we trust in Him, as we follow after Him, we will find life. As we surrender our life, as we lose our life to the Lord Jesus, we find our life. It's one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. It will cost us everything, and yet it costs us nothing. All we have to do is come empty-handed and bow before Him and say yes to the great invitation of the gospel. And so I finish by asking, where are you in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ? I know where Mary stood. Where do you stand? It's been a joy recently to see some of our number committing to Christ and being baptized, nailing their colors to the mast. And God willing, we have another few who are um, preparing for that. And as soon as I get my act together and we get a date in the diary, we will have another baptismal service. What joy for us as a church family, as a church fellowship. But the question is very personal. Where are you in relation to God and in relation to Christ Jesus? Not where was Mary or where are our young people? Where are you? Are you committed to Christ? It might mess up your plans might alter your dreams somewhat, might throw up a few surprises following Jesus. But what could compare? What could compare to a life lived with God and for God? Life lived forgiven and free. Life lived forever in the fullness of His love. Nothing. Nothing could compare with that, and no one else can offer that life to you, only the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we give thanks to God for Him as we pray together. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the way in which He humbled Himself for us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see him, soften our hearts to recognize and to receive him. And as we receive him, to receive the life that he alone can give, life in all of its fullness and life lived forever with you and for you. Father, may we affirm with Mary that our joy is found in bringing glory to your name through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is in his name that we offer our prayers. Amen.